0: Langer Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk.
1: Well, good morning. Honoured that you would come out in such good numbers. Last spring, my wife and I had an opportunity to visit India, where both of us were speaking. And we're in Delhi, and we took a bus ride down to Agra to see the Taj Mahal. Lives up to its photogenic picture, you know, postcard looks. It's a glorious mausoleum. It's a great big tomb where the Mumtaz... Mahal is buried in, alongside of her Shah Jahan, who had the thing built in her honor. There's a story I was unable to verify, but that after Mumtaz died, and Shah Jahan had many wives, but she was his favorite, and I think it was after, or in, in giving birth to their, her 14th child, that she died and he was grief stricken his whole world stopped and as a memorial to her as a tribute to her he had this great Taj built this great big well they've got me wired up to this is it, is it too echoey? should I move it up a little? Or yeah. is this better? are we okay? can you hear me back there? Okay. Anyhow, uh, Shah Jahan had the Taj Mahal built to honor his wife Mahal and her death. And the story that I heard, again, was unable to verify, but that he began by putting her remains in a rosewood box and had the dimensions of the Taj drawn out from the center where this box lay. And the construction got underway, and his grief, Shah Jahan's grief, turned to a sense of obsession about building this palace, this grave site. And one day, the story is that he was walking through as the construction was going up, and he tripped over a wood box and was so angry. uh, We do know from history that the Shah Jahan had a fiery temper. And he was so angry at this box being in his way, he ordered it disposed of. Uh, They must have discovered, if the story is true, that uh, before it was too late, that it was actually the box holding the remains of his beloved wife. Do you ever feel sometimes a church is like that? That the very reason that Jesus Christ established his church on this earth That God dreamed the dream of a covenant people, empowered with his spirit, sent out to do his work in the world. That somehow along the way we got so obsessed with the building of buildings and the launching of programs and all the various divisions that we've preoccupied our time and our energy with. Do you ever feel that sometimes the real purpose for which God started us out is almost gets in the way. We've forgotten why we're here. What I understand this Cole Convention is about is, is recovering the heart of God for the mission of God. You may be familiar with this statement that the church of God does not have a mission in the world, but the mission of God has a church in the world. Let me say that again. The church of God does not have a mission in the world. It's not that it's something that we do alongside everything else. But the mission of God, the God who is on mission, the God who loves the entire world and every person in every tribe and tongue and nation, is this refrain over and over and over again. That this God is bent and, and this God has burning in his heart a desire for all people to be saved. And what he established on this earth for the cause of his mission is a church. That's at the center. And sometimes we trip over that and we just, what is this thing? We're so busy with all the other things that we forget that this is the heart of God. Now what I want to do today, in fact throughout the week, I want to take and look at some very simple Christian themes, discipleship themes, things that God's doing in our heart through Christ, through the Spirit, that are really the key to recovering the purpose for which God put us here, to be on a mission with God. And over the next two days, I'm actually going to do a bit of a... I'm going to play an, some of the New Testament against the Old Testament in this way. I'm going to look at, in, in these next two days, a some of the story of Jonah and contrast it with some of the story in Acts. And this is why. Jonah is the ultimate story in the Bible of what it is to lose your sense of mission. Jonah is a man who is appointed by God, raised up by God, given prophetic anointing and gifting by God to be on mission with God. And when God sends him, in missionary endeavor to a people that are very wicked, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, he bulks. He doesn't only bulk at the task. He bulks at the very God who would think up such a thing. It actually says twice in Jonah 1 that Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. He's not just fleeing the call of God or the demand of God or the request of God. He's actually fleeing God. He can't believe that God would ask him to do such a thing, to go to his enemies and share God's grace and love with them. And so the ultimate anti-missional book The book that portrays the people of God that keeps stumbling over the purposes of God and saying, what is this doing in my way? This is about programs. This is about us enjoying ourselves. This is about getting the songs that we like to hear. This is not about the world and God's heart for the world and God putting the church in the world because he has a mission and he needs a church here to carry out that mission. This is where... Jonah is about where it becomes about us And that God is Blessing us So that we might be a blessing to the world And so Jonah flees that task You know there's a I I mentioned last night if you were here I love C.S. Lewis And I I just found out from Pastor Dave Leach here That he actually grew up in Belfast I I had no idea I thought he was a Londoner (laughs) From Oxford or whatever so good on you, <laughs> but um, the the, uh, the story I, I, I told last night I, I had in my head, and I began to tell this other story that I'll tell this morning from the book *The Silver Chair*, where this girl named Jill doesn't believe in Aslan, the Christ figure, but she meets this. Christ, for this Aslan, this lion, face to face. And she uh, wants to take a drink from a stream, but she's afraid that he will swallow her. And she finally uh, says to him, She says, before she takes a drink, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I take a drink? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And then she asked him this, "Uh, Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink then, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. Do you believe that? There is no other stream. There is no living water. Only in Jesus Christ. Well, you don't swallow girls, do you? You don't eat... You now, I've eaten men and women and kings and kingdoms. You see, the story of Jonah is not the story that American preachers used to make of it. I don't know what they did in Ireland. But American preachers spent generations trying to convince their congregations that a whale could swallow a man whole... And he could live in the belly three days and come out alive. You wouldn't believe the kind of efforts that were expended from American pulpits trying to convince, you know, American congregations that this indeed was true to try to validate the historicity of Scripture. That's not the point of the story of Jonah. The point of the story is, can God swallow a man whole? Put him in the belly for three days? resurrect him to a new life, a Christ life? Jesus said the sign of Jonah will mark out the followers of Jesus Christ, that those who have gone into the very heart of God, they've been died to themselves, and been raised in the power of Jesus Christ to be on mission with God. The story of Jonah is, can God swallow you whole? And you come out more more alive than you've ever been. Well, Jonah is the story of this man who doesn't want to be on mission with God. Here's the where it's going to tie in with the text I'm going to read in a moment. As you know, Jonah, after he gets spit out of the whale well, does, does what God asked him to do. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches to this town. And he actually says what God asked him to say. God's command to him is preach this. And, and the text in Jonah 3 says that he, he spoke the words God commanded him to speak. So he's not disobedient at this point. And his message is this, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, I wish sermon prep was that easy, don't you? I mean, you, just, you can memorize that in about, you know, five seconds and, um, and that's it. It just goes back and forth, it takes us three days to travel the length of Nineveh and it's just the same as a Johnny One Note. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. You know the story. Uh, Nineveh, the Ninevites led by the king hear this message. They repent. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They even put it on their cattle. I mean, these guys are going to go the extra distance here. And God has mercy and spares them. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but there's two words in the Hebrew that could be translated overturned. One of them Unambiguously means destroyed. I think you pronounce it samad, but I, I again I, I'm a bit bumbling when it comes to the Hebrew. It, it, unambiguously, there's no way you could misinterpret that word. If 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 Jonah was saying forty more days and Nineveh will be samad, it would mean this thing is going to be totally, utterly wrecked and destroyed, annihilated. The second word, and I think it's nephth, but I. Again, forgive me if I'm, if you're a Hebrew scholar and I'm getting that wrong, is ambiguous. It could mean destroyed, but it could equally mean it will be turned around. <laughs> it will be transformed. That's the word God gives Jonah. Not the word that unambiguously means annihilated, destroyed. This ambiguous word that could be go either way. And here's what I think. I don't know how it all works out because the Assyrians have a different language than Jonah was speaking. But I think that they glimpse and they understand the promise inherent in that word. I think that there's a, that they understand that there's a The God of the universe who is deeply grieved over the wickedness of this place is reaching out to them and saying it can go either way. You choose. We can either destroy this or we can overturn it. We can turn it around. We can transform it. And I think Jonah knows that and why he's so reluctant. That he's, well, he says at the end, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you're going to have mercy on this. I'm so angry at that. Again, the anti-missional text. Now, here's uh, the text I want to read this morning, and take a little bit of a moment to unpack. It's in the Book of Acts, and this word "turn over." It's again a different word. It's in the Greek, but it occurs here. I'm going to read chapter 17. And I'm going to begin in verse 5 and just through to verse 9. And then keep that text open on your lap because we're going to jump back into some of the story in Acts 16. So Paul now is in Thessalonica. And he goes and he preaches at the synagogue, which is his custom. And he actually preaches for three Sabbaths. So he's there for the better part of a month. In verse 5 it says, But the Jews were jealous... So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Now they... Some translations, I'm reading from the New International Versions, cause trouble. Some translations have, who have turned the world on its head, or turned the world upside down. That's where the whole title for this series of morning talks comes from. These men who have turned the world on its head, upside down. They've come here too. And Jesus has welcomed them into their house. There defines Caesars decree, saying that there's another king. One called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. Here are the ones who have turned the world on his head. Do you know the tradition is that the Apostle Paul was bald. Let's not hold that against him. Short. Let's not hold that against him. Bandy-legged. We won't hold that against him either. And pippy and squeaky-voiced. It's him and Silas, maybe a few others. Maybe Silas was a big bruiser. Maybe he looked like a biker. But little Paul. Oh no, here comes the man who turned the world upside down. In fact, in the Greek, what the world means is here are those who raise up an insurrection, they mess with society. We're in trouble. Here's the ones who cause trouble. All we're in big trouble if these guys have come here. Here he comes. It's not like the wild ones rolling up on their Harleys. I mean, mean, goodness. This little Paul.
0: Hey, you guys. Stop it. Here are the ones.
1: When I started out in ministry some twenty years ago, I remember. I don't remember from whom, but I remember reading this. Everywhere the Apostle Paul went, they started riots. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. (laughs) Don't you think there's something sad? That the church, just a few representatives of them, not looking very impressive. Paul himself says, "I'm, I'm not physically impressive. When I came to you, I came in weakness. I came stammering. I came in brokenness and humility. But the church on mission is so such a force loose in the world that that just a few representatives from the body of Christ can wander into a town and there's a sense like oh no here it comes. Don't you think it's sad that somewhere along the line we stumbled over the purposes of God for the church of Jesus Christ? And it just seemed to be in the way. Everywhere the Apostle Paul went, they started riots. And everywhere I go, they serve tea. Now, what do these men in Thessalonica mean? What is their reference point that here are the men who turn the world on its head? Well, if you go back in the chapter 16 we find out that there's only one possible point of reference that they could have. This is the very first time Paul and the missionary endeavor of the church have reached this far up into the edge of Europe. Previous to this, Paul was down in Asia, wanting to move further into that territory, and it says twice that Jesus' spirit or the Holy Spirit opposed that or blocked their movement. And then Paul has a dream that a man in Macedonia, which is a province that Philippi is the capital of, a man in Macedonia pleads with him in the dream, would you come here and help us? And it says that Paul awakened from that dream and concluded that God would have them preach the gospel up in Macedonia. And immediately they made plans to leave. So all we, we we can pretty much say with assurance that the only thing that these men of Thessalonica have reference to in terms of here are the men who raise up a, resu- a, a insurrection. Here are the men who turn the world on its head. Here are the men who's caused trouble everywhere. Here are the men when they're on mission, watch out because it begins to change everything. The only point of reference they have is Philippi. What happened in Philippi? Well, Paul goes there, it says, because he concludes there to go to preach the gospel. And in fact, the story kind of concludes, if you remember, with Paul and Silas in jail and the jailer asking them this question, how can I be saved? And Paul answering this way. I think this is chapter, uh, this is verse uh, Chapter 16, I think it's verse 31. Paul answers the jailer this way. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and all your household. Have you ever heard a more succinct distillation of the gospel? Just believe in Jesus and you will be saved. It's beautiful. It's simple. A child could understand that. But here's the question that I ask. Is what did the Philippian jailer mean when he said, how can I be saved? The Gospels never come into that territory before this moment. He's been court ordered to put these guys in jail. He understands salvation to mean something that may be different from what you and I understand. He's asking this question, how do I get in on whatever you have? What is it that you have? There's something I glimpse in you. There's something I see in Paul and Silas that I want to be part of. I I understand how it can transform my life. How do I get in on that? How can I be saved? And Paul says the doorway to this is you believe in Jesus Christ and you walk into this whole new life. What is this whole new life? Well, if you go into the beginning place, when Paul and Silas first get to Philippi, they meet a rich woman named Lydia going down to the river to pray and they meet this group of women and they share with them, they share the message of the gospel and it says that Lydia, this rich woman, this woman who is a dealer in purple claws, which means she, she's got bling, opens her heart and she accepts him and then immediately we see, you see a transformation in her life. She immediately wants to share her wealth with these two men, Paul and Salah. She wants to share her resources. Her whole life she's been waiting for something bigger to live for. She's been disappointed, I assume. It doesn't say that. But there's. I'm, she says she was a, a God-fear. There was a hunger in, in, for, for the reality of God in her life. But when she hears about Jesus Christ, when she hears this gospel, something in her opens wide. And, and she says, this is the thing I've been waiting to hear and know and embrace my whole life. And I will give everything I have and everything I am over to this. Here's my stuff. Would you use it for the gospel? And she has to persuade them and, and they begin. To, they go and stay with her. You see, what we find is the gospel that is being preached is also being enacted. It's being lived out. It is this very clear, very concise statement. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But it's a thing that once it takes hold and grips you, it starts to transform you. It starts to move you in ways beyond self-centeredness, beyond me and mine, beyond my stuff is my stuff. And we see that immediately take hold in Lydia. That she's believed in God, but when Christ enters in, when the Spirit takes hold, when that opens up, she's just suddenly saying... God has blessed me with the ability to make lots of money. How do I put that into play for the kingdom of God? That's the first thing that happens. The next thing is Paul and Silas are going down to the river. They found that that's a good place to go. go. And a slave girl follows them. And the slave girl has a spirit, a foreign spirit in her, that allows her to predict the future. She's got celebrity status within Philippi. People pay big bucks to have her render this service. And so they go to her and they wonder, should I marry this girl or should I take that job or should I move to this city or whatever they ask her. They are willing to pay good coin to have her do her thing. She's a occult celebrity in the town of Philippi. Do you have uh, horoscopes and all that here? It's a huge rage in where I come from, and, um, and 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 so this is sort of this person personage in the town who somehow is able to give you some um, insight into what you should do today or this week or whatever, and people are signing up, lining up to get what she's got. She's following Paul and Silas around, and she's saying this as she follows around. Um, Here are servants of the Most High God telling you the way to be saved. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. You've got a local occult celebrity. Everybody submits to her spiritual authority. And she's going around, and she's actually nailing it when it comes to Paul and Silas. I mean, is there anything that you would disagree about what she says about them? Here are... Servants of the Most High God telling you the way you should be saved. Anything theologically unsound about that? She's nailing it. Now, would you think that might be a good infomercial? Do you have those things here? Infomercials, you know. I mean, this is an incredible promotion of the gospel. The occult authority in town actually going around saying, here's... Here's who you should really be listening to. I mean, imagine if in the horoscopes you opened them this week and every one of them says, you know, Virgo and Leo and whatever. Um, You should all go down to worldview or worldwide and you should listen to the teaching that's been going on there morning and night because it's teaching you the way of God and the way to be saved. I mean, would you get upset about that? Or wouldn't you think... Is God ever on the move here? He's taken captive the very hearts of people who have been in opposition to his rule and his reign, and he's subverting them for the sake of his gospel. Well, Paul puts up with this for a few days, and it says he became so distressed in the spirit, he turned around and he rebuked the spirit, and he cast it out of her. Now, here's what I think is going on. That Paul will not personally benefit from anything or anyone if one person is left in captivity as a result of it. That That Paul's compassion, the compassion of God for this little slave girl that nobody cares about, that everybody else exploits for their own ends and their own gain and their own profit. That Paul's looking at that and saying, yeah, this is a great advertisement for the gospel and what we're doing. But his distress of spirit was such that, I think he just said, I can't take it anymore. I can't take that Satan has rule over this girl's life and her spirit. I cannot abide that. I don't care how much it's advancing in a cause. And I think he knew intuitively what it was going to cost him if he did what he does. Because we find out that there's they get beaten and thrown in jail. I think Paul knew What it would cost him, and I think he knew it was gaining him to continue to have this girl promote him and Silas in the ministry. But Paul's compassion was such that he could not abide one soul being captive to the enemy, even if it meant the advancement of the cause and the mission. I said last night, if you were here, that. Uh, five or so years ago, we began to cry out to God. Bring us the broken. Bring us the drug addicted. Bring us the sick. Bring us the people that nobody wants to inherit because God, and give us the heart to want to inherit them. God, may the power that is in Jesus Christ be so alive and so evident in us that as they come into this body, that they experience the liberating power of Jesus Christ. To care about the least of these, to care about the people that nobody seems, everybody drives by. That's this girl. This incredible act of compassion on Paul's part and Silas's part. So first we have Lydia. The gospel comes in, and it goes beyond just kind of this awareness and seeking of God to the something that takes hold and transforms her now she wants to share her wealth with the kingdom for the sake of the kingdom and then this least of these this poor little girl that everyone has used and Paul sets free but here's where the story really comes to crescendo is for that good act that they've done in behalf of this slave girl she's now liberated from this spirit And immediately her owners realize they can't make money off of her anymore and they stir it up. And Paul and Silas are dragged before the magistrate and they're ordered to be publicly beaten and it says they're severely flogged. I don't know if you know how the Romans did this but it's not just kind of like bad boys. There's a movie that I'm not sure if it made it over here Uh, came out a few years ago called The Passion of the Christ and it depicted rather gruesomely the flogging and beating of Jesus and uh, I understand that they got that quite historically accurate. That's how the Romans did it. They, They had cat and nine tails. They had these thongs with bone chips and metal shards woven into it and they beat you, beat you, beat you. And that's what they do to Paul and Silas. And then it says that they 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 throw them in jail and they order the jailer to put them under special security. So he puts them in the inner chamber and then he puts shackles on them. Reality check. What if it happened to you? I can get irritated when somebody cuts me off in traffic. Do you, do you have... Am I alone up here? A bad day for me if I, is if I get in a traffic jam and um, I'm ten minutes late. What if you had done this incredible deed of kindness and compassion for this little slave girl liberating her from this bondage, this captivity, this oppression. And for doing that act of God, they beat you within an inch of your life, threw you in jail, put shackles on you, and locked the door. I don't know if I would um, be too pleased about it. Do you know what Paul and Silas do? Verse twenty-five. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Can you hear them? The stone walls, way down in the in the bowels of that dungeon. Can you hear them?
0: A mighty fortress is our God. A borrower never failing. Or something like that. Can you hear them? Blessed be your name, the land marked with suffering. Can you hear them? That's how they come out of that.
1: And it says this, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Can you see them? I think some of those prisoners um, weren't there because they had done a good deed in <laughs> town. Some of them were there because they had rolled some poor innocent in some byway. Some of them were there because they had done a B and E, break and entry. Some of them were there because they had done grand theft auto or whatever, you know, grand chariot auto or whatever. Some of them were there because they had murdered people, cold blood and the other prisoners were listening to them do you think they'd ever seen or heard anything like that before they saw these two men dragged in they probably heard the buzz did you know what those guys did yeah they that little slave girl that we saw they they set her free they did that to them for that apparently dragged in Put in the stalks. And we know from history that the Romans used stalks not just for extra security measures, but extra means of torture. So they twisted their bodies into these contorted shapes and put on the handcuffs, clamps, tighter than the skin so that they bit into the wounds that they already had.
0: Blessed be your name in the land. Marked with suffering. And this pain in the offering. Blessed be your name.
1: And the other prisoners were listening. And then an amazing thing happens. A huge earthquake. And the jail shakes. And the doors fly open. And it's so powerful the shackles fall off. And it says the jailer awoke at that moment. He must have been listening earlier because he does ask the question, how do I get in on this? But he's fallen asleep. And he's about to do what any good Roman would do under the circumstances because it's going to be his life anyhow. And save Caesar the time and trouble. Just kill yourself. And he's about to do this. And out of the darkness comes a voice. Do not harm yourself. We are all here may i suggest to you that pronoun we the plural is one of the most astonishing moments in the entire book of acts may i suggest to you that at that one pronoun the entire gospel distills we are all here paul doesn't just mean paul and uh, Myself and Silas haven't made a break for it. He means every prisoner in this place has stayed put. And the other prisoners were listening, because they had never could have imagined. That there's a power in the world so great, so deep, so true, so rich, so beautiful that the world can serve up its worst and you come up praying and singing. They couldn't imagine that the world could kick you in the teeth and you come up with your heart. What did we sing when we started this session? My My heart is filled with thankfulness. What is this thing loose in the world? What is this gospel you came here to preach? How does it get into the inmost places and do that? We're all here. I'm not going anywhere. you going, I'm not going anywhere. I want to find out what this is. The jailer gets up and says, how do I get in on that? How do I get a piece of that? You even care about me. You cared about that slave girl. You you cared about the rich people. You care about everybody. And and we could do the worst to you. And you live with thanksgiving. I hope you understand something, Church, that we've been tripping over the purposes of God too long. It's time to get back to the heart of God. You know what was transforming? in a culture that's depraved, in a culture that's broken, in a culture that really doesn't have much interest in the gospel. A church that stops complaining. That stops judging. That stops acting toward the least of these as everyone else acts toward them. A church that is marked out by profound thanksgiving. Paul says this, and you quoted at the beginning, that... Be thankful in all things and for all things. This is not just an act. It is a way of life. It is an orientation. It is one of the most missional things that we could do. That we actually believe that there's a God who's sovereign and is actually working all things together for good for those who love him and call to his purposes. That our lives were an embodiment and a reflection of the sovereignty of God that you don't, it doesn't matter what they do to us, God is in control. God is sovereign over all that. The profound power, the impact, the influence that a church Utterly given over to thanksgiving could have in this world we are all here. I was in Uganda i 'm about to close. I promise you every day i 'll get you out of here by twelve thirty 'll be my I was in Uganda a number of years ago, and I was angry and bitter about something and to this day I can't remember what but I went down and uh, where we're staying in the edge of the jungle they had a little lean-to tin roof when it rained the thing just rattled and these wood benches and every night the Christians would gather and have this rousing prayer and praise time absolutely electric I don't know if you've been to Africa before and, and renowned for its singing um, the, the reality is in the parts of Africa I've been in and I've been there several times, it's some of the best singing you'll ever hear and some of the worst music. Um, when when you hear them play the guitar, it's like they're torturing cats. Anyhow, that was going on and beautiful singing and these, um, these uh, terribly played instruments. But they were just so into it. But not me. I was sitting at the back on the back bench and very bitter about whatever I was bitter about. And partway through the service, the pastor got up and goes, Oh, brothers, sisters, does anyone,
0: does anyone want to praise God?
1: And everybody but me wants to praise God. And they're all jumping up. And, and this beautiful, tall, willowy woman at the back says, Oh,
0: pastor, pick me, pick me. And he says, Sister, come, come, come. And so she comes up and she's so happy. And she goes, Oh, I'm, I love my God. I praise him all the time. And they say, Tell us, sister, tell us. She goes, oh, he's so good. I don't know where to begin. Just begin there, sister. Just begin there. And she goes, oh, okay, okay, okay. For three months, I prayed to my God. Give me shoes. And look.
1: And she held up, and she just had ordinary shoes on. My
0: God has given me
1: shoes. And the place breaks out in just glorious applause. And there's a young man, I was young once, sitting on the back bench and the God, the Spirit of God is piercing me. In St. Mark, not once have you ever had to ask me and pray to me. Get in your face and ask me for shoes. And Mark, not once have you ever thanked me for all the shoes you have. May I ask you, in the authority of Jesus, would you, through this day, just start thanking God for the air you breathe, for the house you have, for the food in your fridge, for the shoes on your feet and the shoes in your closet. And then move out from there. Because when a church rises up in profound thankfulness, whatever the world may do, the world takes notice. We are all here. Father God, I pray. I want more of that in my own life. I want that trust in the sovereignty of my God that no matter what, you rule and you reign, and you are in control, and you are working it all out toward to together for good. God, I pray that my thankfulness will not only be for the things that I can obviously need to be thankful for, many, many things, but God would move up from there, and even in the face of what seems like bitter defeat and opposition, that I could come up singing and praising God, the world doesn't know what to do with that. But they stick around and listen. And at some point, they get around to the question, how do I get saved? How do I get in on this? So, Father, I pray that we would be marked out by a profound, deep, rich, genuine thanksgiving the word, the God who saved us and brought us in in all of this. pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'll see you later.
0: We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate